0: Good morning, church family. (laughs) Our first passage of scripture comes from Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Our second passage of scripture today comes from Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Abigail. And thank you all so much for being here today. We are really glad to have you here at River Oaks. And uh, we've been talking this summer about questions, talking about everything from uh, gender to sexuality to work to politics, and we've looked at a lot of why questions. Last week, we talked about why should I believe Jesus is the only way to God. Today, we're going to go to a how question, and that is how can I overcome temptation? We all struggle with temptations, and sometimes we struggle with recurring temptations, the same things that seem to come back and back. And Uh, present ongoing struggles for us, whether it's temptation to anger or greed or lust or pride. For many people, temptation comes in the form that may feel more like an assault or an attack, condemnation, shame, inadequacy, being tempted to think wrongly about ourselves instead of thinking the way that God teaches us to think about ourselves on the basis of who we are in Christ, that is, if we have put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. So how do we overcome these things? How does our thinking change, and how do we overcome those recurring temptations that assault us in life? You know, the Bible says that even Jesus was tempted. In fact, the Scripture says He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And I'd like to start this morning by just saying that we need to be alert to two realities before we talk about specifically the how-tos of overcoming temptation. Two different things to be alert to. The first is <clears throat> to be alert to the tempter, the adversary, in his schemes. Satan is first revealed in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, the passage Abigail read just a moment ago. And verse 1 of that chapter says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. And the serpent comes to Eve and said, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan's first words to a human being we have recorded in Scripture. Did God really say that? Now, what God really said, we can read a few verses earlier. Here's what God said to Adam. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, except the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So his first question to the woman is, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then he just out and out flatly contradicts God's word when he says, you will not surely die. Now, the reason I stress this is this first appearance of Satan in the scripture gives us some keys to how he works in tempting people uh, yet today. When he came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, as Christ was beginning his ministry, the Bible says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the title here for Satan is the tempter. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Well, of course, Jesus knew who he was. He was very secure in his identity as God the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But Satan comes to question that truth, to question that reality, to challenge it, to cause doubt, to lead us to depart from God's path and to sin. This is one of his schemes of which we should be aware. Another of his schemes is to deceive in broad terms. One of the most informative passages in the scripture about Satan and his work is chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. We read these words in that chapter. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. Now look carefully at these words in this verse, because there is a wealth of information about who Satan is and what he does. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the great dragon is the ancient serpent of Genesis who is also called the devil and Satan who is also the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them before our God, night and day before our God. The word devil uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word diabolos is, is, has the meaning of slanderer or accuser. The word Satan has the meaning of adversary. It's worth noting, I think, that Satan is a created being. He is not God's opposite. God has no equal opposite. If Satan has an equal opposite, it is probably Michael the archangel. Satan was created as a ruling angel who in his pride rebelled against God. The angels thrown down with him are thought by many to be the the evil spirits, the demons, and so forth. This same chapter we're looking at, Revelation chapter 12, says when the dragon fell from heaven, he swept a third of the stars with him. And some suggest that that refers to a third of the angels rebelling with Satan. But the point is simply this, accusation, deceit, this is his nature. This is who he is. We need to be alert to that. And we need to be alert to this fact, that one of his schemes is to hinder our growth in faith. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And I would say this, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, he prays for you as well. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan, Revelation chapter 12 says, makes war against the saints, to cast doubt on God's Word, to deceive, to mislead, to lead us from the path of God's will to tempt us to sin and to hinder our growth in faith. And so when we're talking about overcoming temptation, I think first we need to be aware of his existence, his reality. Uh, Many people today treat uh, Satan as he's revealed in scripture as just kind of a symbolical, uh, symbolic or allegorical uh, presentation of evil. But the Bible presents him as a very real personality C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and philosopher, wrote these words in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. As the Apostle Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes, of his devices, and we should not be ignorant when we talk about temptation because that is his nature. But secondly, as we think about temptation, we need to be alert to something else. And that has to do with our own areas of vulnerability and weakness. Not all temptation comes from without. In fact, I would say that most temptation, direct temptation we face in life is not a direct assault from Satan without, but rather from within. We read these words in James, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now notice those words, his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Again, many, and I expect most temptations that we face come this way. The Apostle Paul, in warning Christians about temptation, is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and telling us that we must not desire evil like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. And he lists things like sexual immorality, idolatry, grumbling. And he concludes by saying, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands. That is, if you can stand against temptation in your own ability, in your own strength, take heed, take heed lest he fall. No temptation, he writes, has overtaken you except that which is common to man. His point is simply acknowledge your weakness before God because strength to resist temptation is going to come from him. So let's be alert to these two things. The reality of Satan, who is the tempter, who is the deceiver, who casts doubt on the integrity and the truthfulness of God's Word, but also the reality of our own human weaknesses and vulnerability. So how, practically speaking, how do we overcome temptation? How should we? I'd like to suggest four ways that I think we can overcome temptation. Number one, submit yourself to God. In Scripture, for the believer... Our strength is found in submissiveness to the Lord. James writes it very, very simply when he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Strength comes in submission, submissiveness to God. This submission is first and foremost, of course, submission to the saving lordship of Jesus, It starts by coming to God and humbly saying, God, I know I've sinned. I know I'm a sinner. I I know I need your forgiveness. And I believe by faith that Jesus paid the debt for my sins when he shed his blood on the cross. So we humble ourselves and, and, and come to God this way. We enter the kingdom of God. But we live a life of submission to his lordship. And particularly when we face recurring temptations, those things that continue to come to us that we struggle to overcome. Strength for overcoming is found in submissiveness. Our posture toward God is always one of submission. Our posture toward the devil is always one of resistance. And that, again, is why Paul said, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Humility before God is the pathway to spiritual strength. Satan is far stronger than any one of us is. Far, far, far stronger. But we don't stand against Satan in our own human strength. We would fail. We would fall if we did. But Satan is no match for the Lord. And when you've put your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. And in humbling ourselves before God, we find that that is the place of spiritual strength. A starting place for overcoming a recurring temptation is humility, submissiveness before God, the acknowledgement that we need His help. Secondly, practically speaking, how can we overcome temptation? The book of Proverbs gives some of the most practical advice for overcoming temptation of any book of the Bible, particularly Proverbs chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And there we're taught to avoid the environments and circumstances of temptation. The writer of Proverbs says, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Don't try to get as close as possible to the temptation without falling. Avoid the pathway. Don't go that way. Speaking of a a woman who was a temptress, who was tempting a, a, a young man, perhaps a prostitute, the writer says, Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. To be kept from temptation, first of all, you have to want to be kept. You have to want to be kept from temptation. Don't see how close you can get to it without falling. Identify the people, the places, the things that generate temptation for you and stay away from them. If you know students, if you go to a certain party, you're going to be tempted, you're going to have struggles there. Just don't go. This may mean avoiding certain friends or certain places or certain websites that lead you and you know are, are going to lead you in a way that's contrary to God's will. It may mean putting filters on your computer or, or phone, almost certainly will. But the best way to be kept from the path of temptation is by not getting close to that path. Stay away from the people and the places and the things that lead you Toward temptation. Related to this in the book of Proverbs, count the cost of yielding to temptation. This is where I think so many of us uh, struggle with thinking ahead, thinking ahead to what would happen if we really yielded to that temptation. Proverbs uh, emphasizes very strongly in these same chapters, four, five, six, and seven, the need to think ahead to what would happen if you yielded to temptation. Proverbs 5:89 says, keep your way far from her, do not go near the door of her house, lest what happen. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Proverbs is very strong on warning about adultery. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And then in Proverbs 7, we read, and now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my house. And again, it's talking about a, a young man who's tempted to go uh, near the house of someone who, who may have been a prostitute. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim is she laid low and all her strain slain or a mighty throng. When we think about temptation, whether it's experimenting with some, drug or a relationship with someone to whom we're not married. What's the end result going to be? That's the teaching of Proverbs. Think ahead. How will I feel later if I do this? It may be as very simple as as being on a diet and having a gigantic piece of cake in front of you and saying, how am I going to feel in 30 minutes if I eat this? Or the person who finds himself or herself getting involved with someone and the wisdom of saying, what's the end result? Where would that go if I continued down this path? That's what the book of Proverbs teaches is prudence. To be prudent is to give thought and care to the future and to realize that there is a, a cost to willfully yielding to temptation. And Proverbs is simply teaching us the need to consider the cost, to count the cost, to think about it ahead. Number four, use God's word to resist temptation and renew your mind. Again, James says, submit yourselves to God. That is the starting place for us, isn't it? We bow before his lordship because the place of spiritual strength is in our submissiveness to our omnipotent God who is all-powerful. We submit to him. But then the second prescription from James is to resist the devil. That's our posture toward the devil. And it's our posture, I think, toward all temptation, to oppose, to resist. The question is, how do you resist? Do you simply say, I resist you, Satan? Well, I think the best way to resist is the way Jesus resisted. I think we have this first confrontation in the wilderness between Christ and the devil because it's critically important for us to learn from it, to learn how Jesus faced temptation. So let's look at it a little more thoroughly right now. Matthew chapter 4, we read, The tempter came to him, and said, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Satan knew that he was hungry, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus quoted a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know about you, but When I've been tempted, I don't know that I've ever gone to the book of Deuteronomy for a verse to quote, but Jesus knew it well. He didn't have to go get the scroll from the temple. He had obviously memorized it. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is another verse found in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Another verse from Deuteronomy I wonder why Jesus went to that book of the Bible. He could go anywhere. Perhaps it's because the Israelites failed in their temptations in the wilderness. where they were given the law, reminded of God's law by Moses, but where they failed in the wilderness, and where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, Jesus prevailed. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. It's worth noting that temptation often comes in the form of a shortcut. Satan here is saying to Christ, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. In other words, you can have your kingdom and you don't have to go through with this crucifixion. You can have your kingdom without a cross. And temptation is often a temptation to bypass God's way, to fulfill some desire in an immoral or illicit way, to uh, gamble and get rich quick instead of working hard. And so Jesus uses the word of God I think this tells us something. First of all, that Jesus viewed Scripture, the written Word of God, as inspired, as authoritative. Jesus quoted Scripture throughout the Gospels. And for Jesus to quote a Scripture, whether he's talking to the scribes or the Pharisees or speaking to Satan, when Jesus quoted a Scripture, that was to settle a matter. The Bible says after he quoted the third time that Satan left him until an opportune time. That implies that Satan would come back again, and I'm sure he did many times. And Jesus was often found quoting scripture. So what I want to recommend is this. It's an exercise that I have found immensely helpful in life. And that is to find verses in the Bible that address your particular need or your particular struggle if you know you struggle in a certain way, to find verses in the Bible that speak to that and to apply them in your life so that when you're tempted, perhaps there's a time you you quote the verse out loud in the face of temptation, but maybe when you're with other people, you just quietly reflect upon that verse, let it renew your mind, and as you do that, you're saying, I'm submitting to God's word here. I'm not yielding to this temptation, to slander, to gossip, Let me give just a couple of examples. And I think it's a great exercise for you to search the scripture for yourself and to find relevant verses that will strengthen you and gird you up for the particular temptations that you may be facing. Just looking at at one book of the Bible and one short section of it, Ephesians chapters four and five, perhaps um, you struggle with, as I expect we all have to some degree, impatience. Certainly, no, that's been one for me arrogance, rudeness. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, to which you've been called with what? All humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, that's a verse that many of us, I think, would find helpful when we're uh, perhaps even in a marriage, that you find yourself impatient with your spouse. God calls us to deal with one another as followers of Jesus with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Maybe your struggle is lying, twisting the truth in some way. Ephesians is really clear. Having put away falsehood, put away lying, let each one of you speak truth, for we're members of one another. What about wrong speaking? This is a verse that I have I memorized years ago and have found so very helpful when it comes to, to uh, the words we say. I've noticed with myself over the years that most of the time when I'm confessing a sin to the Lord, it, it has to do with, with words. Something I said, uh, maybe I shouldn't have said. Or maybe something I didn't say, when or how I should have said it. Um, often that's been the case when my wife and I were having a tense discussion and I felt like, you know, it'd just be best if I didn't say it. And, and, and so that's led me to a time of repentance before the Lord. And, and that's, it just, it's just taught, taught me, you know, as James says, we all struggle in many ways, uh, but taming the tongue, that's the big one. Wrong speaking, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Think about those words. Reflect upon them. The words that you speak, first of all, no corrupting talk allowed, but, but what's good for edifying someone else, for building them up? What's appropriate for the, the occasion, the right time to say it? And it will give grace to the one who hears. Now, what is corrupting talk? Well, I think 5 verse 4 tells us what corrupting talk is. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. One of the questions that, one of the suggestions that's come this summer for a question we might deal with had to do with Christians using profanity cursing, even putting stuff out there on social media. I'm not sure why it is, but, but some Christians feel like they want to get as close to the world as possible. I don't know if, if people just feel it's cool or something like that. Even pastors every now and then have this idea. You cannot reach the world by being like the world. You cannot reach the lost by trying to live like the lost. Jesus calls us to be light in the world, to be different. And for a believer, for a believer, profanity, crude joking, filthiness, of course it's wrong. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words we speak are showing the nature of our heart to our friends, our family, the people around us, the, the world around us, and so they're critically, critically important. I expect a lot of us struggle with some of these things that may be not profanity but, or, or, or crude stuff, it may be just the words that we speak, and so i point you to these things, the value of memorizing them, reflecting upon them, meditating upon them, saying them out loud, and, and letting them re- renew your mind. Anger. <laughs> I'm sure we all <laughs> have had this struggle. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a tough one. Closely related, lack of love for others. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. I really believe the highest mark of Christian maturity is is love, love for others, particularly love for people who are hard to love. When you can love the irresponsible neighbor or coworker or family member who just always makes your life miserable. When you can pray for that person until God has put love in your heart for them, you, are, you can be sure you're growing in your faith. It's a mark of maturity. What about immorality, greed, covetousness? It's interesting that Paul would put the two in the same sentence, isn't it? Sexual immorality and greed. Some people would like to major on one but completely disregard the other. But Paul refers to covetousness <clears throat> later. This chapter is actually a form of idolatry. Let these not be once named among you, he says. Drunkenness. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. This is another question that, that was suggested that we perhaps touch on at some point. Christians. Um, really just pushing the limits um, of showcasing their, um, their love for alcohol and so forth. I, here's my opinion on this. I, I don't think the Bible requires a Christian to be a, a teetotaler. And uh, I don't buy the argument that, that uh, wine in the Bible was really grape juice. And when Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, he was saying, take a little grape juice. I think he was talking about real wine, but he said, a little. And here's the point. Drunkenness is always, always wrong. As Christians, we need to be aware of that. When you, when you intoxicate your body, whether it's alcohol or some drug, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants the, the rule in our lives at all times. So so we have to just ask ourselves, where is the line? Where is a line, whatever it is, that we're not quenching the spirit. That's why Paul says, "Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit." That is why he's contrasting the two. I, I've known many, many, many Christians, including Christian leaders, pastors, for whom, um, particularly alcohol, was a was a significant um, struggle. And if it is for you, I would just just ask yourself, does I have too much control in my life? Could I give it up? Could I give it up? Do I have to have it to have a good time somewhere with friends? Am I relying on it too much? And again, I, I don't think alcohol is outlawed for the believer in the Bible, but caution, caution is advised. Uh, And certainly drunkenness is forbidden. Um, Marital strife. Any of you married ever have any marital strife? Am I the only one here? I find these verses in Ephesians 5, and they follow the command to be filled with the Spirit, by the way. So they're only possible, it's only possible to fulfill these if you are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church. Wow. Wow. How is that possible? I mean, Christ's love for the church is perfect and unconditional. Um, that's a tough one. Uh, but that's the mandate. Many have been the times that verse has come to my mind, and I've had to reflect upon it. Um, I've had people, well, just one person I can ever remember, who, who, who gave me the idea that there was never any strife whatsoever in his marriage. Married. And he'd been married a very long time. It's not somebody in our church, or I wouldn't use this example. But he was going on and on about the perfection of their marriage, and, and I was sitting there thinking, I think you're lying. <laughs> I just <laughs> did not believe it. Because when you have two people with their own issues under the roof, you've got double issues under the same roof. All of us face some strife at some time. But these words in the Word of God, take them, use them like Jesus did in the temptations of life. Whether you're quoting them out loud, now we're not going to have Satan standing and speaking to us, I don't think, in our, our, right in our face like Christ did, but we're going to face the temptations to depart from God's will and God's way and by using the Word of God we are not only effectively resisting, because God's word is both a shield and a sword for us in terms of our spiritual strength, we are also inwardly renewing our minds and strengthening ourselves by reflecting on the word of God. So let me review these four steps for a moment, overcoming temptation, realizing it can come from the tempter himself or from our own desires inward vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Four things. Submit yourself first to God. That's the only place of real spiritual strength. Secondly, avoid the environments and sources of temptation. Don't go down the path. Don't hang around with the person. Don't go to the party, whatever it is, where you know that's going to be a problem. Number three, count the cost of yielding. Think down the road. How would I feel about this later? What is going to happen if I continue to pursue this path, this relationship, this friendship? And then finally, use God's word to both resist the temptation and to renew your mind. Great strength there. Remember how Jesus used the written word of God. Let's pray together about that. Father, I pray first for anyone here today who has never genuinely put his or her faith in you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you would bring that one to the realization of his or her need and to simply humbling themselves before you and embracing your salvation provided through Jesus. Father, I pray for any (coughs) who have struggled with shame, condemnation, and inadequacy. Whether from inward thoughts or outward thoughts from the evil one, I pray today you would strengthen that person to grasp the reality of what your word says about what Jesus has done for us and allow that person to feel and grasp that they are accepted in the beloved Christ. Father, we all struggle in many ways, but we ask for greater grace from you, greater wisdom to live in submissiveness to you, and to draw upon the mighty strength you've given us in your written word. Help your people today so that we will be light in this world, Father. And we ask these things in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.